Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. There are mass graves all over Latin America, but the concentration of dead and disappeared in Guatemala and Argentina is staggering. More than 200,000 killed by the state in Guatemala's 36-year conflict, known simply as La Violencia, and up to 30,000 disappeared by the Argentine military dictatorship over the course of its reign of terror in the 1970s and 80s. How does a country reckon with crimes against humanity? How do the families of the missing find the truth? Forensic exhumation is practiced at the crossroads of two ways of thinking about the body, anthropologist Alexa Haggerty writes, as a scientific object to be analyzed for evidence of crimes against humanity, and as a subject, an individual, someone loved and mourned. In her new book, Still Life with Bones, Haggerty documents her training with forensic teams in Guatemala and Argentina, whose members have devoted their lives to unearthing the bones of the disappeared, reconstructing not only their skeletons, but the stories of their lives. Thank you so much for talking to me, Alexa. Oh, thank you for having me. So you're trained as a social anthropologist. What drew you to train in the field of forensic anthropology in the first place? Yeah, that's right. Um, I had been in, in Argentina doing some other field work, and I heard um, about the the Argentine forensic anthropology team and the work that they had um, been doing since the end of the dictatorship to to find um, and identify the disappeared and restore um, these these people's remains to their families. And I was just um, fascinated. I was really fascinated by it, and I was even more. Um, drawn to it when I learned that exhumation as a human rights practice had begun in Argentina at the end of the dictatorship. Because to me, it just seemed like such a natural process. Like, of course, we would, um, after this kind of catastrophic violence, we would go and look for people and we would make sure that their bodies could be returned to their families and we'd look for evidence of the crimes. I thought that we had somehow just done that forever. So learning that it had begun, you know, relatively recently in the 1980s um, in Argentina, I wanted to, I wanted to know more. Part of what makes the work in these places so difficult and also so powerful to me is that they're working not just against a massive scale of physical erasure, but also against a kind of ideological or linguistic erasure. For instance, even today, people with no sympathy for the junta will call what happened Argentina's dirty war, even though it wasn't a war at all. That was a phrase invented by the junta to justify its its tactics. Like, torture or rape or throwing people from helicopters into the ocean. I mean, even the word disappearances is evidence of that. I don't know really as much about La Violencia, but I imagine similar ideological work was at play, right? Right. So maybe I will note here that I use the term La Violencia, and I'm following here um, many other researchers who, who use this term, but it's not a term that everyone chooses to use because it can make violence sound like kind of like 
a weather event or something, like something that just happens, rather than making clear that there are perpetrators of violence. This violence didn't just happen. It was perpetrated, you know, by the military, by the government. Because, for example, in Argentina, you know, no one is disappeared. People are killed. So even disappearance um, is itself a kind of, you know, is also used by the junta. So I think it's incredibly powerful the way in which forensic teams literally unearth evidence of crimes. You cannot say anymore that, like, like the junta said in Argentina, that people were just hiding out in... Europe, you can't say that when you're presented with uh, the remains. You can't say in Guatemala that that somehow, you know, the mass graves are because it was all about guerrillas, armed fighters, when in that mass grave uh, is full of mothers and babies. You can't say that. So it's very powerful evidence against the the slippery language the kind of hallucinatory claims of uh these dictatorships yeah i think the scale of the task the scale of work that goes into forensic anthropology is is just daunting you write that in guatemala they've identified 3000 781 people in nearly 30 years of work. In Argentina, it's taken almost 40 years to recover about 1,400 sets of remains. Can you talk a little bit about just how many hours of work goes into identifying a single body and what that work looks like beyond, you know, what you might imagine about carefully brushing dirt away from bones? Right, absolutely. You know, my exposure to forensics before I started this project was like a lot of people's. I think it was like things that I saw on Netflix or on TV, and it all looked um, kind of fast and easy and guaranteed. So when I uh, went into to the field to do my research, I was um, really kind of shocked by how incredibly difficult it is and what what a kind of needle in a haystack um, search it is. Because first of all, the, the whole logic behind disappearance and many mass graves is that, that the perpetrators are hiding the bodies. The whole logic was that these people would never be found. So part of the labor is just trying to find where these graves um, are located and that happens often through oral history because there may be knowledge being held in the community about where the mass graves are, but that people have not um, openly spoken about for fear of reprisal um, in situations of impunity like uh, Guatemala um, particularly has had. So that's one part of um, looking for graves. They could also, uh, archae forensic archaeologists can go and look at the landscape and they can find clues from changes um, in the contours of the landscape. Maybe where it be an area, there's a very subtle, sort of it's has sunken in a subtle way. There might be changes um, in the plants growing there. So they're looking at the, the soil to see if it's ever been mixed up, uh, disturbed, which might be a sign that it's um, been dug up. 
So there's that axis of labor. Then there's the labor of um, then actually removing the bodies, which has to be done very, very carefully because, you know, this is evidence. So it has to be documented in place and then very carefully taken out, then transported to a laboratory uh, where it's cleaned and um, the bodies are articulated so that, that you can understand clues about uh, things like sex, age, trauma, stature. But then there's also this whole other axis of labor that has to do with, like, if you're going to try to make a um, identification, particularly a DNA identification, you have to have a database, right, of this genetic material. So the teams also go out and talk to families and take um, DNA samples, you know, like swabbing people's cheeks, um, but also get information like, did uh, what was the person wearing when they disappeared? Um, did they have any kind of maybe a childhood accident where they broke a bone or they chipped a tooth or something that might serve as a clue uh, when they're looking at the, the bones and teeth? So there's just tremendous, tremendous effort. And I don't um, know, I talk in the book about how um, I was out with a forensic team and sort of just having a night off. And sort of challenging people to explain to me, like, well, how many, how long does it take to identify a body? And, um, you know, people were like, oh, but don't forget about this. You know, you also have to, like, we also have to drive out to the middle of nowhere to find the families. So people were like chiming in with all these different kinds of work that it takes. And we sort of did, you know, this estimate that maybe for every body, it takes about a month of, of labor. But it's such a staggering and difficult thing to find people that really it's only a fraction. And it's really important to understand that some people will never be found. Um, and to think about, well, what does that mean uh, for how we think about exhumation? What does that mean for families? Yeah, what does that mean for this labor? I mean, so what happens in the few instances in which a family is reunited? with the body of a disappeared loved one. Yeah. So, I mean, what happens, let's say, in a kind of um, logistical or material way is that the family and sometimes the wider community, because, for example, in Guatemala, um, sometimes entire families were, were wiped out in the violence. Sometimes families were displaced and can't be located because they, you know, had to flee. They that went to Mexico or they went somewhere else, but they're able to return um, bodies sometimes to communities, uh, but ideally to families. And in that case, often what happens is that the team will travel with the remains to the community and there will be several ceremonies, but one of the ceremonies will be um, that the team members, I talk about um, this inhumation, that's what it's called, an inhumation process that I um, was privileged to witness in, in Guatemala. So the team members came with the bones and they very carefully, with a lot of respect, pieced together uh, or kind of articulated the body in a sense, but in a smaller space so that wasn't the body was not spread out over, you know, five or six feet, but um, in a smaller kind of container that's used like a coffin. 
Um, so there was this very careful sort of scientific naming of each bone that had been uh, found. And then the family would step in and then move into a more ritual, spiritual um, rite to, to honor the, the missing, well now recovered people. I was really struck by one case you talk about um, of a girl with her dog, which I, I don't know how rare it is, but was a case where a family didn't claim the body and in fact didn't even want to be associated with the body. And her remains were one of the teaching skeletons that you learned how to do this work on. Yes, yeah, that this is a case that um, I really carry <laughs> in in my heart. Um, it was one of the first cases I worked on, or a very early case I worked on when I was just learning. So um, I started in the context of kind of like an exam, like an informal exam. So the, I was with colleagues and we were trying to piece together to articulate this skeleton and to understand, to read the clues on the bones, understand what had happened to her. So we did, so we did that and it was a challenging case for several reasons. Um, but when we got to the end of it, um, the team told us the story of this girl. And what they told us was that um, they had been excavating a well on a military base, and they had um, exhumed male bodies, more than 70 male, biologically male bodies. And at the very end, there, was, uh, there were two skeletons that were different. One was of a young girl, um, like a teenage, teenage adolescent girl. And the other was a, a canine skeleton, so a skeleton of a dog. And they, I think that the team also was like, oh, who, who is this? What has happened here? I think, you know, with this sense from their vast experience that a young woman on a military base um, probably suffered something very difficult. And so went out looking for her family. And as you said, they were eventually able to find her family because people in the community remembered this girl with her dog, her dog, her pet dog that was always with her. And they did eventually find her family and her family did not um, want to have her body returned to them, which is very unusual. And, you know, I don't know why that is. We could maybe guess that, um, that, these forms of violence are incredibly traumatic. That um, so it may have been a kind of trauma reaction. We could also say that there are vast forms of impunity and danger that are still um, still happening <laughs> that that still continue in communities. That there are people who live right next door to um, per perpetrators. So I don't know why her family didn't want her back, but the team, um, you know, was very moved, I think, on a human level by this, by this story. And so they sort of kept her with a lot of honor. And when I followed up on, on this case, writing the book, they told me that, you know, she's, they still are waiting to make the identification. There's still, they have her, they've done the genetic sequencing. There still could be a match if someone wanted to, to come forward or if someone could be found, a relative. 
Um, but this case was really powerful to me because I had been so worried. I was working with colleagues who were really, um, who are trained in, in forensic anthropology in a way that I was not at all, who are much, much, you know, better <laughs> at, at reading bones than I was. And so in the course of this exam, I had been really caught up in, you know, wanting to, um, sort of get the technical details right and, um, feeling nervous about the exam. But then hearing the story, it's like I suddenly realized that, you know, for the time that that exam had, had taken for that hour or whatever, that I had kind of lost sight of the humanity of these bones, that this, you know, that I was dealing here with the, the body of a girl, a young woman who had um, lived and and loved her dog, you know. So that was very profound lesson to me in the necessity and in sometimes the difficulty of holding these two ways of knowing, which sometimes our intention around the, the bones as scientific evidence and then the bones as part of a, a human, someone who's lived and was loved and grieved, as I'm sure that this girl absolutely was, you know, whatever com complicated thing was happening with her, with her family. I was really moved when the the forensic team said they kept her dog's bones with her because she always did with them. I know. I yeah, yeah, exactly. They kept because when we had encountered the canine um, bone mixed in. I think we had thought it was like a trick question on a quiz, like, <laughs> but it wasn't. Or as I say in the book, it was, but it was a trick question in a very different way. It was about like, um, can you, can you learn the technical process of articulating this body and keep the full humanity of uh, this young woman with you? Yeah. I was so intrigued to learn all the ways that a person's life is still visible in the bones, both by what's around them, like the bones of their beloved dog or clothing or like the boots that one skeleton is still wearing that are identical to all of the boots of the workers who are helping to dig up the grave or even in the bones themselves, like how weaving can alter the skeleton. Can you talk about the way that culture is inscribed on the body? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this to me um, was incredible, and it still is incredible to me, because an expert forensic practitioner can read so much in bones. So you, I think, would expect that people, you know, you can read signs of, of death in bones that you could read, you could see a bullet hole, you could see marks from a machete. But uh, what you can also see are many, many clues about the life that someone led. So some of that might be uh, clues around nutrition, that if someone you know, wasn't well nourished, you could see clues um, about that potentially. But you could also see clues um, about what they did for a living. So I talk about how in Guatemala, there's a very ancient technique of weaving that goes back 
I think thousands of years in which someone kneels in front of a loom and this kneeling over many years, um, changes the way that the bones in the feet, um, and the ankles and the lower legs, uh, look. So a, an experienced forensic practitioner could look even at these very tiny bones in someone's feet and see clues like, oh, I, this person was a weaver. Or the, the, these bones are consistent with the pos- you know, someone sitting in this posture for a long time. So yeah, these are called occupational stress markers. And um, we probably all have them to, to some extent, you know, so whatever you're doing every day is, is leaving marks in your body, even down to the, to the level of your bones. Can you talk too about, um, I guess the other ways that a person's life is kept alive, even in the absence of bones, specifically about testimonio, um, Uh, and sort of the relationship between testimonio and exhumation or in the rituals that happen after a body is returned. Right. So, um, testimonial is a form of testimony, like it sounds like, but it's a very particular kind of witnessing where someone talks about their, their personal experience of oppression, of violence, of something that they have been through. Um, so it has like all of these different roots. Uh, It goes back to the Holocaust in Europe. It's connected to forms of like talk therapy. It's connected to um, forms of liberation, kind of teaching and education in Brazil. It has all of these roots, but it has really sort of come um, full flower in a way um, in in Latin America, and there's a really strong tradition of it in Guatemala. And partly that's because as other forms of, let's say, judicial testimony are foreclosed because of impunity, although certainly there's many valiant um, fights to, to also make sure that judicial paths are opened, um, but when there's not this judicial path open, it can be a way that people testify to what happened to them and set the story straight and make this sort of public witnessing about what they've been through. So, you know, I came to Guatemala trained as a social anthropologist trained to do uh, interviews and I came with like my little audio recorder and my notes from my methods class and I at first sat down to try you know thinking I was going to do interviews and what I discovered is that um that I had a lot to learn that I had a lot to learn and um a great deal of that learning took place through the privilege of um hearing people's testimonials, hearing people testify in this sense about what they had been through. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the the impunity with which a lot of state actors are able to continue acting in positions of power and authority is really saddening, enraging in both of these countries. Um, one of the people you talk about in the book briefly is an anthropologist who returned 
to Guatemala, her homeland, in 1982, sort of at the height of La Violencia in Guatemala, Mirnamac Chang. I was wondering if you could talk about the relationship that there is between forensic anthropology and the authorities. Chang's example is a very striking one of the kind of horrible relationship there can be. Right. Um, so Myrna Mac Chang, she was an anthropologist, so she was going out and doing this ethnographic investigation focused on um, communities that had been displaced, because in addition to the the tremendous violence of, of killing and of disappearance, there was also such massive displacement in Guatemala, which is at the time had a population of about 8 million people and about 1 million people were displaced. So this is what she was looking, looking at, and she's going to talk to communities and document this aspect. So Myrna Mack did this really important research, this very early research. It was dangerous. It was difficult. And it was the kind of research that many Guatemalan researchers, it was much more dangerous for Guatemalan researchers than potentially for researchers outside of Guatemala. And one of the um, kind of lasting critiques that has stayed with me that uh, Myrna Mack said was that, you know, basically it was more difficult and more dangerous for her to work in her own country than for European and American anthropologists who at the time were coming into Guatemala, but they weren't studying the violence. They weren't studying the profound um, inequality and structural violence also that was related to the catastrophic violence. They were studying, you know, things like marriage ceremonies or things like that. So um, there's a great line that I think actually comes from Paul Farmer when he visited Guatemala that he talked about that there would be anthropologists studying widows, but not talking about why these women were widows, the kinds of violence that led to them being widows. Now, I have to say that that has really changed in anthropology, but that wasn't very long ago. So... So yes, so Munamak did this incredibly important, courageous work um, documenting the forms of violence, the structural violence, the catastrophic violence, the displacement, and she was murdered. She was murdered right in front of her office um, by, by the government. And it was through this incredible labor of her sister who pursued, just dauntlessly pursued the case um, that this ever came to light and that impunity did not, in this case, win, that you know the truth came out. How are forensic teams in Guatemala treated today? And how are they treated in Argentina? And I guess as a corollary to that question, like, how would you compare those given like the reckoning that there's been in these two countries or the lack thereof? Mm. Well, I mean, I think that it's really mixed because I think that um, both teams have received 
well-deserved international recognition for their incredible efforts. So they do have absolutely have standing on an international scale. The Argentine team has been um, nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. So I think that there is international recognition of the importance of the work that they do. And there is also recognition within Argentina and Guatemala. But for a long time in both countries, they were really, you know, working in, in contexts of impunity. It was very dangerous at times to do this work. In Guatemala, they received uh, really frightening death threats um, many times. There's also been like kind of, let's say, more subtle threats, like trying to sort of smear people's reputations, that kind of reputational threats. So I think it's really... Um, a mix, but even that those threats in a way speak to their power because you don't you don't bother threatening people who you don't think uh, are themselves a threat to the status quo. So um, I think that the power of these teams is recognized, but sometimes that power um, has been perilous or even dangerous for the team members. And beyond things like threats, you know, another challenge for these teams has been funding. Big challenge on funding. They um, have often been working on absolutely shoestring budgets. That really surprised me because to, you know, their work is so self-evidently important, but they have um, through the years at different times really had to scramble for funding. And then at different times, you know, there, there have been different legal kind of contexts have changed in both countries where there's sort of more and less impunity and that um, there was the there were laws in Argentina like the full stop law which basically meant that even if new evidence even as teams you know identified bodies that evidence wasn't really admissible anymore because there were this kind of state of utter impunity for the perpetrators although that eventually in in Argentina that did change. In a lot of ways, Still Life with Bones kind of reads like a farewell to forensic anthropology for you. And you say at a certain point in the book that you couldn't work during the day and cry at night. Um, what do you, I guess, why did you decide ultimately that this was not the path for you? And what are you doing instead? Yeah, yeah, this is the this is the Clyde Snow line that he would tell the students. He's like, you got to work in the day and cry at night gifted forensic practitioners really can do that. And it's really incredible to witness. You can really see that they can, they're able to create enough distance that they can do this work day after day, week after week, year after year, You're confronting human evil. Yet at the same time, they can be with a family completely present, you know, truly listening with such compassion, bearing witness, and they can do both of those things. And and they can, you know, support that year after year and have, you know, their own family life. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I didn't have it kind of in the same way that, you know, I know that I couldn't be a surgeon because like this, that sight of blood is like too disturbing for me or, you know, there's just, 
I guess, things that you know about yourself or you learn about yourself. I respect the work of the team so profoundly. And there was, um, when I was in Guatemala, when I first started the research, one of the team members would joke with me. Someone I called Maxi would joke with me. He said, ah, stay here and become a real anthropologist. And I really felt that. I felt like this is like such like really meaningful work. And this is something that I would be proud to spend my life doing. But I found that it couldn't. The cost was too high for me. I couldn't work in the day and cry at night. I just, uh, it took too, it was too, the toll was too heavy for me, um, which only allows me to appreciate more vividly what these teams are doing and what they're capable of. So I knew that I couldn't, couldn't continue sort of indefinitely um, doing forensic work. But I knew that I had seen something really important. I had learned something that's even hard to describe about like, this is how, this is how bad things can get politically. This is what happens when a society falls apart. I was yeah, a well-read person when I went. I knew the numbers. Uh, I knew about the genocides, but I didn't really know something until I physically stood in a mass grave and I saw, you know, a body, or maybe I saw two or three bodies, and you know that that's just the tip of the iceberg. Or I thought about like the pain of, you know, losing someone, my own experiences of grief, and think about that pain multiplied by the number of people in that grave and then the number of graves in that country. So I felt that I had like had learned something really important about um, where authoritarianism leads. And I also started to feel that around me, in the course of my research, the world was changing and that the kinds of speeches that I was you know, listening to on old reels um, from Argentina were suddenly also like I would turn on the TV when I came home and these very similar speeches were coming over the TV. So I felt that I just, I wanted to do something that would in some way kind of get ahead of mass graves, like to understand more like what leads to mass graves. And I was extremely struck by a um, visit to the police archive in Guatemala City where the police had dumped all of this paperwork, you know, because at the time that um, the disappearances were happening in Guatemala, it's, you know, it was analog. So things were written on pieces of paper, put in paper files. And this police archive actually went back like a hundred years. So there were like massive amounts of paper and they had all been dumped into this half finished building and kind of left to rot there kind of quasi forgotten about not completely forgotten about but quasi forgotten about left to rot and then discovered quite by accident 
So I was able to see this police archive, which at that point had already been in the process of being you know, recovered for at, at least a decade. Um, but even at that point, you could just see these masses of paper and you would open these books and see the little photos of people and the codes, the codes that say, you know, that someone's under surveillance, the codes that say whether someone was allowed to live or die. And that just, I mean, of course, you know, on some level, you know that when you have systematic violence, there's a system, right? There's a system. But I had never thought about it, I guess. So seeing this system, which at the point that I encountered it was in absolute disarray and in this kind of, I compare it to this like rotting, beached whale carcass because it's just so massive. But thinking about this massive surveillance that was going on um, leading up to the catastrophic violence and enabling the catastrophic violence. That got me very interested um, in surveillance and in thinking about the forms of technological surveillance that we have available now that were not available um, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, the era that I was researching at the time. So thinking like, what would have happened if the Argentine junta had facial recognition technology. <laughs> I mean, what would have happened if they had the capacity to track people on their phones that, you know, we now have? So that's the question that um, my research really centers on now is thinking about the, the human rights implications of these emerging technologies. <laughs> We have links in the show notes to Alexa Haggerty's incredible book, Still Life with Bones, Genocide, Forensics, and What Remains, as well as some recent writing on human rights and surveillance. And if you ever find yourself in Buenos Aires, take a day and visit one of the memorials to the disappeared. I've been to one of them, ESMA, twice. It was originally an educational facility of the Argentine Navy, and then it was used as an illegal secret detention center. Now it's an incredible museum to the disappeared. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>